Hi everybody, this is Michael Collo from Crypto Cappuccino. Today I'm joined by Professor Ali Nejadmalieri to talk all about blockchains, his experiences in the US, and I suppose where all this field is going. I hope you can join us. Welcome everybody. I'm here with Ali. Hello, Ali. Hi, how are you, Mike? Good. Uh, Ali is a Associate Professor of Finance. University of Wyoming. In fact, sorry, he is the John A. Guthy Endowed Chair of Banking and Financial Services, <laughs> which is just an awesome title that we were talking about right before we started here. But um, so obviously you're coming at the whole world of financial services, as a pricing and crypto from a very uh, interesting perspective, which is all about the, the academic rigor and, and the background that you hold. But I'd love to learn a bit about your journey of how you came to be here to start us off with, with your PhD and, and how you kind of progressed uh, through the financial markets and obviously came to be where you are today. Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for the talk. Um, I, um, you know, I'm an electrical engineer by training. I got my uh, uh, BS in electrical engineering um, whew, 25, <laughs> close to 30 years ago. I started working in oil and gas. And one day I'm sitting uh, across the client. They're yelling at us, you know, about something that went wrong, had nothing to do with my division, but you know, I had to sit there and take it. And as I'm lo- listening to you guys, I realized, well, I could get an MBA and sitting right across and yelling at, at the poor staff that are sitting right, right there. So, uh, so I started uh, you know, looking around. Uh, I ended up uh, an MBA from Texas A&M and it was my, uh, uh, I kind of started weird. I started um, uh, not the usual fall, I started in winter. And uh, my uh, finance class was in the summer. And, uh, you know, the first semester I took econ, uh, accounting, uh, marketing, and management. Uh, I thought management was something I would never want to do in the rest of my life. <laughs> marketing was tolerable. Accounting clicked, and I loved econ. And then when I took the finance class, I thought, this is it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to look at any further. Uh, and really, the journey in it t- took its own life. Um, I, um, I got admission from uh, Arizona. I remember I was, uh, I was looking for jobs at a time. I was getting close to the end of my MBA, so I'm looking for jobs. I just got back from a, a sort of like a orientation and a life insurance company, and I can't remember who it was. And I wasn't really excited about it at all. And all of a sudden, you know, my roommate comes in and says, somebody from Arizona wants you. And I wasn't in a mood necessarily. And I thought maybe it's a telemarketer or something like that. So phew, Arizona wants to talk to me. And I realized, oh, wow, this is one of the schools that I applied. So I picked up the phone and lo and behold, this was Mike Weisbach. Now, Mike Weisbach is um, unequivocally in a god of corporate, fine, uh, corporate governance, especially. And is uh, on the phone and says, so when are you going to come here? You know, we're waiting for you. And I'm thinking, I don't even have an admission letter. What are you talking about, man? <laughs> So, uh, so, 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 you know, so I, I, obviously shortly after, you know, I went to Tucson, uh, loved it. It was, it was a fantastic place to be in. Obviously, Mike was there, you know, heavyweight. Uh, our other heavyweight was Chris Lamoureux. He was a uh, sort of applied asset pricing person, uh, you know, empiricist. And then we have Chuck uh, Schlitzlein, who was uh, one of the young, but, you know, gods of experimental finance. Uh, we had Werner Smith, who then you know won the Nobel Prize for Experimental Economics. Downstairs, running uh, you know experiments. Um, I mean, everybody around me. You know, now that I look back, I never appreciated how big these people were. Now that I look back, I realize I was surrounded by giants. I had no idea I was surrounded by giants. 
And so it was a, it was a fascinating you know, place to be in. It was a fascinating time to be in, uh, learn a lot of stuff. And, and the great thing about Arizona was uh, it, it was a disaster for them. It was a blessing for us. Uh, they had a lot of turnover. And so as a result, we were left alone. And so, you know, we took classes we liked, you know, we experimented with stuff like that. We learned a lot of stuff. And uh, in the middle of all of this, uh, one of my first ideas, and I think Chris had a lot to do with it, uh, was to study prepayments. And, you know, prepayment is when you pay your mortgage faster. Now, it could be that you're paying faster more or that you refinance. You know, there are all kinds of different ways it happens, right? And uh, the, the mortgage-backed security people hate this, uh, absolutely hate it. Because, you know, they buy the bonds and they feel, you know, for the next 30 years, I'm going to earn whatever return. <laughs> you cut them off. <laughs> and usually when that happens, it's because rates are so low that you're, you're moving to a cheaper mortgage. So obviously, they can't reinvest it in something better. Uh, now, the funny thing is that only interest rate explains half of this stuff, and half of it is never, you can't ever explain it with interest rate movements, and so they call it irregular you know, prepayments. And I was very fascinated in, in uh, you know, first of all, measuring it, second, you know, try to explain it. And so at a time, there were a lot of, you know, high-tech models, you know, uh, trinomial uh, trees, you know, et cetera, et cetera, coming about to just get the interest rate part, you know, correct. And then, you know, deal with the other nightmare you can't explain. Uh, and I remember uh, one day, it was funny, I, I printed out, this is the time that, you know, Bloomberg didn't have the download capabilities, or at least we didn't have it. So I printed out 10,000 pages of um, <laughs> prepayment information for various <laughs> various mortgage-backed pools and then and then read them through by scanning them, making them electronic, so then I can make it a database. So I'm in the me middle of this process, obviously very arduous, not very pleasant. And um, uh, Ed Kane was a great economist at a time. He only taught half a year at Arizona. His son was visiting. And he was, uh, he was working at the city's uh, mortgage desk at me at a time. And so I'm telling him what I'm doing, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, well, that's interesting. Uh, what, you mean location, location, location? That's good, good. <laughs> he said, do you know what matters for, uh, <clears throat> for mortgage-backed securities? I said, I don't know, location, location, location. He said, no, <laughs> divorce, divorce, divorce. <laughs> And I'm trying to understand why he says this. And after he left, you know, I spent quite a bit of time trying to even digest, you know, what, what he meant. And then I realized it's probably the only common factor that can explain untimely liquidation. Uh, there's almost nothing else that, you know, works like that. And so I started running simple regressions on like macro level and lo and behold, this thing is beyond significant, right? Uh, but <laughs> were you able to observe that would have that would have been a tough one to observe. But did you have another data set for that to understand? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you you can get here in US, probably most uh, advanced economies have it. It's just hard to get. But here, uh, I was able to call. Uh, I think it was part of the Department of Health Services or something like that that they had um, basically divorce rates at county level. Okay. And so you could basically match the county of the pool to the county and then run, you know, macro regression. Sure. Um, so in the, I'm, I'm in the middle of this and God rest his soul, uh, 
Ed Dill uh, was taking his class and he threw a curveball in class, which had nothing to do with this. He said, I think at a time there was something weird going on in treasury market. And he said, uh, well, what do you think this is going to do to corporate finance? Uh, you know, like the choice between debt and equity, et cetera. And everybody had an opinion, et cetera. And then I raised my hand and said, uh, is there a paper? He said, there is no paper. And I thought, well, that's what's basically he's saying. It's just saying, you know, go and investigate. So that became, you know, my, uh, my new passion. And then I went that way. I wrote models to take into account interest rates and then solve for optimal capital structure, et cetera, et cetera. And basically the next almost 20 years became a variation of that pursuit. Uh, you know, some of the work I've done earlier were all modeling, and then I moved on to more empirical stuff. So to give an example, like when Sarmers-Oxley Act was passed, uh, the follow-up literature was that, you know, this was bad. Uh, and it was bad because it took away uh, mechanisms with, with which information comes about. And so firms started not doing projects as well, not taking risk, et cetera, et cetera. And then I said, well, I mean, if not, not taking risk as much, the corporate bond owners should be happy because, you know, they hate when they take risk, especially, you know, excessive risk. So we tested it with, uh, with bonds and lo and behold, you could show that, you know, there is a huge drop in the spreads after the law gets passed. Hmm. And it's between when it gets passed and it gets implemented and then everything sort of stabilizes, uh, which, you know, tells you indeed uh, the fact that it prohibits them or at least uh, inhibit their taste for risk-taking was a good news for bondholders. Equity holders might, have, might, not, might not have liked it, yeah, but sure. the bondholders yeah. certainly loved it. And so, you know, in that flavor, and um, more recently, in the last uh, few years, a new data set came about, and I got excited uh, about bond ownership. You know, one of the things that all along for you know, almost 30, 40 years or so, people have studied corporate bonds, was that they really didn't know who owns this stuff and what motivates them. You know, what, why, why do they hold this but not the other, et cetera, et cetera. And so there is a, there, there's a growing body of work that now studies uh, various things about that. And one of the things that we sort of come about was that there is quite a bit of network economics in this. Uh, for instance, you know, uh, I've, I've got a, a, a paper that I'm very excited about. You know, one of the things we find is that in, in, in corporate bond ownership, there is no, nobody's called leader. I mean, nobody gets that title, right? It's a little bit different. Like if you go to bankruptcy or you go to syndicated loans, there's usually a lead sort of a lender, lead, you know, this and that. Whereas in, in the bond ownership, there is no lead per se. But it is still within the realm of lending. So you have to think, well, is there anybody leader or not? And so what we find is that there are implicit leaders. Their effect in price is orders of magnitude more than anyone else. And one of the things that they're, you know, the characterizes uh, characterize the, uh, the, the lead lender is that uh, they, they don't take, you know, huge positions, but they take large positions, but they have large positions elsewhere as well. And so what they can do, they can really dictate terms. Uh, and, and this is done through very implicit ways, not explicit. So in middle of this, of course, uh, you know, I moved from Oklahoma State. I came to Wyoming, and at a time, Wyoming was passing a lot of laws that had to do with uh, blockchain, etc. And uh, what, what, you know, what kind of laws were they? Just out of curiosity. So, uh, so, so Wyoming was one of the uh, well, it is now uh, the first state, not one of the first state, but uh, the first state that basically. Uh, created what we call a special purpose depository institutions. 
Um, and the way it works is basically a custody bank, uh, that this custody bank was chartered by the states, not at the federal level, and it was allowed to basically do custody of digital assets. Now, as you know, you know here in the US, uh, federally, you're not allowed to uh, basically use digital assets as a deposits and then lend, et cetera. So you can't, you can't do that. Uh, but, you know, we were the first one that started this avalanche of uh, we do banking up to lending and then we stop, uh, which is, uh, you know, actually uh, wrote one of the recommendation letters for uh, one of our first banks to, to get access to federal rails, so to speak. So now, you know, they have access, et cetera, et cetera. So while they don't do a lot of lending, they basically have access to the U.S. financial system. Uh, which basically means they're gateways for internal and external. You know, if you're outside, you want to get in. This is basically the first place you visit and so on and so forth. And then uh, about a year, a year and a half ago, uh, you know, they're, 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 those are the first set of sort of a loss. And then the follow-up came, which ended up basically allowing a DAO to become an LLC. So it is legally a protected sort of an entity in the eye of the, of the court. Uh, which, again, as you know, you know, not, not all jurisdictions have that recognition for, for DAOs, which basically means, you know, depending on uh, what happens, you could end up in a court of law. And since that protection is not extended, then everyone who's standing behind that DAO is going to be personally liable for what's being sued for. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the guys who were running the show, you know, our uh, director of the Center for Blockchain and Digital Innovation, uh, you know, our dean, et cetera, they came and say, well, um, can you do a course uh, in blockchain and finance? And our CIO, uh, you know, does a fantastic job in sort of a, uh, teaching the investment in a practical way. And they do staking, all other stuff with cryptos. And I said, look, I mean, the guy is doing a fantastic job. If you want another guy to just, you know, teach asset pricing just for, you know, cryptos, eh, I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm suited for that. But if you want to do something with banking, uh, that's a different story. Uh, there, I think we can do a lot of damage. So, uh, so I designed this course, which takes a very sort of a step back attitude. You know, we, uh, we start with going back in time and let's talk about payment systems. Because, you know, originally all of this was about payments. Now as with DeFi and everything is something else, but you know, originally it was all about payments. So, well, let's understand how payment works to begin with so we can understand, you know, what, uh, what these crypto guys are actually talking about. So, you know, we start with the payment systems, RTGSs, you know, ACH, et cetera, et cetera, SWIFT, what have you. And then, and then we move into, you know, what could be the role of DLTs, uh, which, you know, it's a broad topic. I mean, depending on type of DLT you've got. Uh, you could have a crypto or you could have something else. Uh, if it's permissionless, well, now we're talking about, you know, Bitcoin. If it's permission, then it's a hybrid. Uh, and there are examples of that as well. And then after that, you know, uh, then, then we move into um, the sort of programmable money ideas um, and what could happen. There's a beautiful case by Harvard Business School. Uh, um, it's a story of the guys in Deutsche Bank uh, who started the first blockchain for corporate bonds. And then they find out how hard it is to actually do, uh, you know, they thought it was a straightforward instrument. And then you get into it and you realize how much moving part the bond has and how hard it is to actually create a chain for all these, you know, bits and pieces. 
Uh, interestingly enough, the guy who was running the project now is the CEO of Finality, which is the largest uh, <laughs> settlement network for all the big banks in, in, in Europe. And I actually had a conversation with him uh, a couple of months ago about the story, you know, background, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, about a year ago, not coming up to a year uh, almost, uh, you know, the, the director of our center came and said, uh, you know, a couple of guys in um, Cardano want to talk to you. I said, all right, let's, let's talk. So, Sounds very uh, ominous, Ellie. It's uh, <laughs> you know, a couple of guys from down the street. They want to, Tony, Tony wants to talk to you. It's, it's uh, Absolutely. never good. <laughs> so uh, at a time, they, uh, as part of their Cardano 2025 uh, vision, I think, they had this project that had to do with uh, decentralized treasury. And... Uh, you know, they most of the work that they, they, they've been doing was more from a high level, not being a detailed tech, but high level sort of a computer science attitude of, you know, what to do with it, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I come in and I was the black sheep that came in with all the nuances that, you know, economics and finance can bring to networks, right? Because now you're talking about a network that part of it is funding it, another part of it is project management. Uh, conflict resolution, et cetera, et cetera. And it's funny, um, you know, over that, that you know, w- w- topics that I started, and I don't think that they really appreciated me, you know, poking holes in, uh, in here and there. Uh, over the course of last uh, year, I've seen a lot of stuff that came and basically are same same thing. In fact, I was listening to a lecture today uh, by the guys that are funded by um, Anderson Horowitz now to, to do basically research on, on blockchain, et cetera. And, uh, you know, there are uh, theories that are coming to forefront that comes from complexity theory, algorithmic, um, uh, sort of a games, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's all about taking our old Nash equilibrium in economics and, and put it on a steroid. So you can then now work on basically a computer network. And, you know, DLTs are not just any computer network in a, in a, in a dream scenario. It should be a network that runs on, on its own. I mean, that, that's a smart contract. You know, no human being should be able to, you know, finagle with it. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of topics that now, even from a research perspective, have become very near and dear to me. Uh, a couple of them are under, uh, you know, we're putting bits and pieces together has to do with the stable coins, uh, with when you have a network, whether the network, um, under what conditions would a DLT become decentralized and do DLTs that we observe today are a truly democratized or not? And if not, why aren't they democratized? Um, so, you know, 20 some odd years uh, in a nutshell. <laughs> it, it, that's, that's, I mean, it, it's fantastic, isn't it? How life always uh, affords you um, interesting things to think about if, if you're open to it. As you say, Absolutely. you kind of pivoted your career a number of times. And I think what I find fascinating is uh, you, you've touched on so many points there. And I think maybe kind of small subset for me is around the functioning of a network, right? And so the, the thinking, the network thinking that this kind of pushes you into and, and the contrast of that with a much more kind of agency information asymmetry certification type perspective that you have a lot of the models in finance working on which i think are very valuable and and provide really interesting game theoretic as you say models some of which have um equilibria some of which have mixed some of which don't um have close form solutions but 
kind of illustrate various different edge cases and various different kinds of uh, effects and, and outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that there's a um, equivalency of this types of thinking within a network structure. Because when I read the white papers of a lot of the blockchains and try to understand what's kind of happening behind it, it's, it's kind of very mechanically written. So it's a lot more kind of like this happens and this is the noun and this person has to do this and then so on sure. along with cryptography. And it doesn't really explore yet the um, the kind of systems-wide effects, not to mention the cross-systems across blockchains and, and various other kinds of effects. And I suppose what, one of the things I was going to ask you about is one of my experiences, um, which, I, which I, I'm trying to hard to reconcile at the moment with blockchains, is that um, during the global financial crisis, I was working BlackRock. And I, it was an amazing experience to work at one of the biggest asset managers at the time, looking across the financial landscape, seeing what's happening. But what are the observations we had at the time, which was part of the reason that things got so bad is because of the legal rigidity involved with financial contracts. Sure that required forced liquidation in the um, even in the event of, of a fire sale. And therefore, a lot of these assets were basically being sold, forcibly sold, even when there was no prices on the other end. Had they had the flexibility to stand back and say, look, why don't we wait for a day or even a week or whatever, the prices would have had a very different experience. And, and a lot of things that kind of tumbled into um, because of the fire sales wouldn't have. And so then I kind of wonder now, looking at, or the advent of um, smart contracts, and as you said, programmable money. And I think about how, on the one hand, in society, we've learned the hard way about not having rigidity in in such contracts. And also, I suppose, of of therefore not trusting certain types of algorithmic or kind of fixed um, functional forms. And there's a lot of conversations around various different AI adoption, fairness and ethics and whatever reasoning systems, et cetera. On the other side, you've got this new industry coming through going, no, 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 we can program things. We can write it down. We can just put it into a contract and it'll kind of work and it'll be fine. Right. Is that a naivety or is that genius or or something? So they're not going to like me, but but I tell them uh, uh, it is a naivety. Uh, And I think it is because as a former engineer, I I can perfectly understand where this is coming from. You know, it it is a second nature for an engineer to think that I can solve all maladies in life if I just spend a little bit more time on the elegance of of the mechanics uh, of the equation. The thing is that, as you very well know, economic systems are not like that. We're complex, we're adaptive, and we are prone for chaos. Uh, Little things can basically create cascades. No one can stop it. And you're, you're absolutely right. That's, that's actually funny because uh, one of the things that uh, uh, I'm not going to get into it because I'm, I might get into trouble with you know different people. But one of the topics that I'm very much working on a, putting together a proposal has to do with um, how uh, bad a fire sale driven algorithm for settling futures can be as opposed to the systems that we have right now, which lags in settlement allows for time to go and things basically wash themselves out. And, you know, uh, it's funny that, uh, you know, it's a choice, right? It's a choice you make. You want to limit losses, but the way that the current system works is that we aggregate at every level, right? From institutional level to the exchange level, then to the clearinghouse level. So we aggregate up to make sure that shocks can basically be dampened as they go to the system. Uh, and the whole reason you want to do that is that it's okay for one account to get into trouble. It is not okay at all for the system to collapse. 
And so when, when you systemically become very rigid, like you said, that, you know, I cannot tolerate any loss, then what you're asking is that the system will be very rigid and as a result, very fragile. Uh, that, you know, rigidity creates fragility in, in the system. And that's not what you want, right? You don't want it, as it is, the financial system is already levered up to the hilt. And then you make it a, a fragile one. You're just asking for trouble. Um, so one of the things, for instance, and I gave the example of, you know, how things cannot be perfectly uh, programmed. Uh, take, for example, a simple mortgage, Right. Uh, this is one of the ideas we're playing around right now. When you have multiple um, sort of a, uh, networks that they want to talk to each other or they refuse to talk to each other. So a mortgage, for instance, here in the U.S., and I think it's, it's customary elsewhere as well. Uh, when you pay the bank, it's not just for your mortgage. You're paying a payment that includes your bank payments. It includes your taxes, property taxes, and includes the insurance. For the so now each one of these institutions have a different objective, different perspective, demands different things. For the purpose of mortgage, I can understand that if this was just mortgage, we would pay, it goes on a chain, everybody knows what it is, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay. If the default happens, hell breaks loose. But let's say you know that we can forget that. But there is an element here that you cannot forget, and that's the fact that I do not want the tax man at the end of the year comes back as well, we never got your taxes. I paid it. <laughs> and the only reason is one cannot communicate with the other one because one is rigid in maintaining cryptography and, and maintaining everything secret. Whereas the tax man wants to know who's paying the money. I want to know their name. I want to their identity. I want to know their, I want to know everything about it because at the end of the day, that's how they know if I settled my account with them. Right. And so what you have here is a huge problem. It, it's, it's one sort of an encoding has to be decoded reveal tremendous amount of private information to one and only one entity and then wrap it back up again. And this has to happen in a in sort of an interactive way. Now, you tell me how easy it is to do this. And, and like I said, you know, the case in, uh, uh, you know, the, the experiment of Deutsche Bank and corporate bond fall apart I mean, because of that, because they have these bits and pieces that are moving around and the demands are different. Different constituencies demand different type of information and you can't be rigid about it. You can't so, well, this is all I'm going to do. <laughs> then you're not programmable. You know, you're, you're limited. Um, so uh, I'm not saying that things cannot be programmed. What I am saying is, as is the case with, you know, the, the real world, right? The, the rules of engagement changes. They evolve uh, because the laws evolve, because the institutional details evolve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for, for us to think that we can just write a code, leave it alone, and it's all done, uh, and then lives on, you know, Ethereum or wherever it wants to live forever. That to me, it's it's a bit it's a bit more than a naivete. But let's say it is naivete. Well, and and I think it's fascinating because obviously, as somebody who's been associated or work with the financial services industry for a long time, I think I also kind of challenge the narrative that there's a them and us. So there's a kind of the banks elite, absolutely, then kind of mess with people and you know, kind of control people's fates and therefore we're going to be taking control out of their hands and put it into this distributed system. Um, I mean, most of my colleagues that people I've worked with, in fact, just about all have actually been like, upstanding citizens with, you know, very high academics Absolutely. who have Absolutely. at all points in time tried to act with a great deal of integrity and, and honesty and directly. 
And I, I think there's always bad apples and agents, but they rarely make it through that heavy sifting now of the financial services Absolutely. of the interviews and the background checks and the whatever. So I, I feel like there, there is a kind of a distrust perhaps uh, and in the system, whatever the system might be. And, and that's probably a whole other conversation about Brexit, globalization, equality, and so on. But I just wonder whether this distrust in the, in the system is kind of echoed into this element and, and people have said, okay, we understand that it's not as simple as that, but I'd rather take it back in control of it and have a, right. you know, a, a more fragile, more rigid system than have it in someone else's control and be functioning as it is. And, and I think just on this final point, w- one thing that I will note is I think since Ellen Greenspan days and certainly through the 2000s, we are living in a managed economy. And every time that the markets have a significant downturn, people immediately turn to the government and the Fed for interest rate policy decisions, as if there was only one switch, one lever to flick up or down, sure. you know, go or stop. And sure. everybody kind of stops. I, I was at a recently as a conference, I was at a chief economist panel talking about the economy. And most of the conversation was spent talking about interest rates. And I find right. that fascinating given that economic, the economy is, is a group of industries that are engaging in economic activity with inflation and wage pressures and whatever that are affecting them all differently. And right. really, it's, it's, it's kind of like looking at a forest and thinking about, I don't know, precipitation rather than thinking about what are the trees that are actually in that forest. Sure. So uh, there, I think there are a couple elements there. Uh, so as I'm going to touch up on all, all that you said. Uh, you're absolutely right. There is mistrust. And I've read somewhere that, you know, uh, and, and when you look at the age distribution of people who are interested in cryptos and, you know, that space, as opposed, uh, you know, elsewhere, uh, there is a huge dichotomy of, of age groups. Uh, the, the crypto fans are in sort of a 20 to 40 age bracket, whereas the financial market fans are all uh, 45 plus. Uh, so so th- clearly there is there is a separation and part of it, uh, the story is, is that uh, the, the 2008 crisis created very bad taste uh, in people's mouth with respect to, you know, whether financial institution hold their end of the bargain or not. And perhaps, you know, there has been, you know, some um, malpractice, malfeasance, whatever the right word for it is. Uh, there was certainly an excessive risk taking and an excessive, you know, taste for risk. You know, AIG is a poster child of, you know, taking a simple derivative and basically raising it to power N, you know, just so you can get the fees, not understanding what the unraveling is going to look like. So, you know, we can't necessarily say that, you know, their, their arguments is without merit. Having said that, uh, you know, what I, what I, when I teach my banking classes, you know, I said, look, um, I don't, uh, uh, I'm not trying to stop you from going after the cryptos. That's the future. Whether it would be the way we know it or something else, most likely something else, I have no doubt about that. What I, what I ask you is that you do not forget the history of your profession. Uh, we don't do a whole lot of innovations, but when we do, we solve fundamental problems and then we move on. And that's why we don't need a whole lot of innovation. You only need one fundamental problem. That's it. I mean, life can go on really well. So, you know, when Medici's started the modern banking, what they solved was the network effect. They understood for a bank to stay very strong, they needed two things. They needed partial ownership. You know, people have a skin in the game so they don't cheat the banker. And there has to be a network of banks that irrespective, they honor each other. 
the way they created it, they created their own family bank. You know, it was a network that was family. But, you know, then, then again, the Rothschild Bank, you know, repeated the same thing. So it's been a very successful model and has been repeated over the years because they solve a fundamental problem, asymmetric information as you move through financial system. If I want to trust someone else, I think I can trust my own family better than someone else. Most people would agree. Or, you know, agree. Most people, not everybody. <laughs> but, you know, there is a scale to it, right? I mean, if, if, if your solution is family, you know, owned, then, well, you're at the mercy of your family. And if your family grows, then, you know, sure. If your family doesn't grow, you squabble, then, then everything falls apart. So the Dutch came, you know, almost 100, 150 years after that. And they say, forget about this family nonsense. What we're going to do, we're going to create an exchange. You don't even need to move anything around. You can just sign a, you know, sign a book and we're going to debit credit this book all day long. At the end of the day, whoever is short is going to bring the money back. Whoever is long, you know, they can take money out. But at any stage, we're just going to balance the book. That's all we're going to do. Right. And then the, the, the Swedes, uh, you know, almost 100 years after, they realized, well, wait a minute, we don't need to ask for gold equivalent to the amount of trade that they do, because only about a tenth of this is actually move in and out every day. So why don't we just ask a sixth of it? Right. So, you know, as you can see, in a spans of, you know, 100 year each, we have moved from networks to exchanges to fractional banking. And then the Brits, almost 100 years after that, they come in and say, you know what, for most part, this exchange stuff that you guys say is basically irrelevant. Uh, what we need to create is a bearer notes. You bring your bearer note of Bank of England, I honor it with the gold. And I mean, everything that I said are basically the cornerstone of banking, right? We haven't changed that much since their days. What they invented defined the world we're in. And so if it works, and it does work, okay, for most part, it does work. I'm not saying that it's not fragile. I'm not saying that we don't have in a crisis, et cetera, et cetera. But it solved a lot of stuff. So what it didn't solve was the fact that, especially even in the U.S., you know, as you know, in 1800s, there were tens of thousands of banks because people couldn't you know, trust a big entity, whether it's a government or you know, big corporation, et cetera, et cetera. So what did they find out? Every 10 years here, Britain, elsewhere, you, know, you had a depression, not a recession, a depression. So how did they solve it? Well, the Brits <laughs> created a central bank and then the Americans copy paste the same thing. And ever since, we haven't had a major depression. We have a lot of recessions, but not a major depression. So, you know, what you said that, you know, we all care about interest rate. I think it comes from that, that we, you know, one step at a time, we solve these layers of, you know, onion, which is peeling the layers of onion and we're solving one problem at a time. I remember there was an interview in uh, Business Week. I uh, uh, can't remember his name. It was before Fisher, uh, governor of Israel. Uh, this was when the, the wall came down. There was you know, two million, three million, you know, Russian Jews are coming to Israel and he's and Israel. Israel, you know, up until then had an anemic uh, sort of in, in high inflation. They always had a you know, high inflation. You know, it was a trouble. So he says, you know, this is after U.S., you know, Chairman Walker, rest, rest is told, you know, the, the, they raised the rates, they crashed the inflation, everything was done. So it was about a decade after that. Everybody knew that that recipe does work. There's the pain that you pay up front, but it does work. So they got together and said, look, this is godsend, not even once a century. I mean, once, who knows, blue moon, you get two, three million highly educated people all of a sudden walk into, you know, your country. Uh, the only thing we can do is just mess it up. That's the only thing we can do. 
Because if you stay out of its way, it's going to bring marbles. We don't know what even what they are. What we do know that is that we're at, at, at the you know fork of a road. We can either do all the stuff we did, and and it's going to be same exact trouble, or we can decide we're going to do a Volcker, you know, uh, cure, which is going to be painful. But when we're done, we're going to bring the cost of capital so low that all of these guys can go do you know miracles. And lo and behold, I mean, it doesn't take anyone to see that it worked, right? They, they, they battled their inflation, they brought the interest rate low, and the second generation that came out of that is the Israel, the tech, you know, Marvel that you know today. And left and right, you know, startups here, there, you know, what have you. So these are, you know, like I said, we find a solution and clearly it becomes obvious that we, we solve the fundamental problem. Then why do I need to change it all the time? The problem, I think one of the problem, fundamental problems is that the engineers who are coming are the software engineers. That you know, they love to do version, you know, 1.0, 2.0, et cetera, et cetera, every year. Whereas in our world, it doesn't work that way. We, it's not like we don't do innovation, but if I solve a fundamental problem, how many times can I solve a fundamental problem? I mean, how many are there to begin with and how many times can I solve it? So I, I think that's the... Yeah, no, I... I... Completely agree, Ali, and I think maybe maybe the the other thing I add is I think there's an organic. So 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 you know, so, uh, people from high speed world of you know software coming you know clashing to, to the lowest speed of finance, and they're blaming us for you know being too too slow, too stodgy, you know what have you. And, and there's a reason why we are slow. Oh sure. No, look, I, I look, I, I think it's the, the 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 clash of cultures is a fascinating one. I mean, I've, I've often thought about this that the the breed of people that come into an industry often defines the way that it kind of progresses right and so essentially what you have here is in finance we've had you know i don't know biological engineers we've come in we've had chaos theory we've had statistical machine learning i spent a lot of time talking about how statistical machine learning is so different to the whole hypothesis testing kind of idea and 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 you know in one case you're using your imagination the other case you're saying that the answer is in data if only you could kind of see it right right and 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 these kind of premises i think when it comes to financial institutions and money certainly bitcoin i think falls into that camp maybe ethereum but i guess a lot of the other coins and projects and so on seem to be more built around consumption of something consumption sure. of financial services consumption sure. of whatever da, da, da. i think with bitcoin there's a kind of a fundamental question that's why when people ask you what is bitcoin and you get into these long conversations about what is money what is exchange what is trade look sure. i'm perfectly happy to contend that um exchange of uh, pre-agreed quantities between two parties and the transactionaries um for a commonly agreed storage of value it could be transactional could be technologically you know improved and sped up and, and solved with all these caveats i think as soon as you start going into what essentially finance is really good at which is moving capital around with mm -hmm. the promise of future benefits where mm -hmm. that future benefit is uncertain whether that's an equity bond project whatever you want to see you start to move especially in the uncollateralized space or under collateralized space you start to move into a space where now you're forecasting the future. You're not solving the same problem anymore. You're no longer talking about, you know, transparency being or your projects or, or kind of getting rid of the middleman. You're now talking about information asymmetry. You're talking about, Absolutely. you're talking about uncertainty, decision-making under uncertainty and so on. And I think at that point, I, I haven't yet seen anything that addresses that problem in a meaningfully yes. different or better way. And so I think you end up back at a, at a place where, a central agency, whether it's a neutral certification agency or a 
or a lender, which is a kind of an, an agent, has to make those judgments, those forecasts, those assessments, and essentially it still acts as the gateway keeper to the loan or to the to the conditioned uh, flow of capital in that case, right. um, as well as the deposit taker. And I find that, again, it's very interesting for me because in transaction level, I throw my hands up and go, yeah, sure. I mean, I don't think we do that much work in finance to establish more efficient transactionary systems, except perhaps more in in the case of provision of liquidity problems where you've got you know moving capital you've got limited amount of liquidity but that, sure. that's not really the problem essentially that, that i think at the core of bitcoin it sort of thought about i think that they were much more thinking the peer-to-peer transaction two Absolutely. people already have a sense of what each other have and therefore Absolutely. there isn't a liquidity question there's just an, an exchange question Absolutely. um so it, it feels like the vast majority of financial services essentially DeFi when you move outside of the fully collateralized space, we'll still have this big question on top of it, which is how do you think about the future? How do you predict that? How do you provide that uncertainty? Unless you lock people into very prohibitive contracts where you're getting paid on a blockchain that is automatically deducting payments from you to, right. to move into something, right. and that's a systemized way of guaranteeing payments. But even then, obviously you have to keep A, your job, and B, it doesn't really feel like this in the spirit of the exercise, which is of freedom and, uh, and, and you know, right. providing providing options and such. No, you're you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, when uh, the first time I thought of the class, you know, one of the things that people were scared of creating CDBCs was disintermediation. Uh, at the time, you know, I thought you know that this is never going to happen. The funny thing is, now that we've had DeFi experimentation, etc., what you basically have found out is that uh, there is lending. The problem is these are flash loans and they're done basically to accommodate arbitrageurs. Now, their, their definition of arbitrageurs is very, very, very large and vague. It's not the way we theoretically think about arbitrageurs. You know, the, the best way I can describe it is sort of a, like a, a price manipulator. Uh, that, that's basically what it is. But the problem is that in those instances, as you very well know, you know, the speed of money can be very fast and that's okay. And so any contract, whether it's dead or else, can be very short term. But it doesn't solve the real economic problems, right? When I take a mortgage, I don't want to figure out every minute or every day what the going rate is because it, it has that sort of floating rate. What I want is I want to lock in for the next 30 years. I don't want to care what that rate is. I'll lock in. That's it. And, and the same thing goes for cars, same things for a student, everything that basically define our lives, we are constantly trying to hedge the risk of dealing with volatility, whether, whether we know how to express it or not, but that's what we do as, as a species. Whereas DeFi goes the exact opposite. It says, no, I'm gonna settle this on a second by second because I don't wanna take any risk. No, you shift that risk to me. It's not like you don't wanna take any risk. The risk I didn't wanna take, you pass it back to me. Now, why do you think I, I want to participate in a system if I'm not part of that game, right? If I'm not part of that game, why would I want to participate in a system that just increased my headache one more, you know, standard deviation or one level? And then the other thing is, is that uh, I think that's where, you know, like you said, it, it creates a sort of a break from what, what, what the real economy is, as opposed to what financial uh, genius or, or machinery can be. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, ever since the Brits, and I, I give this example in my class, uh, the Battle of Waterloo was fundamental in finance and everything else. It was the day that money went from being the king's and queen's money to be the people's money. 
The mm. Brits, the Brits who didn't have any money, right? As opposed to the Spaniards and the French who, and the French who had big silver and gold, they issued bonds. They literally borrowed from themselves. It's a, it's a time machine. We went through. They went through time. Look at themselves and said, "Look, you, you're the one who's citizen of empires. Sun never sets on. Spot me the, you know, the buck today, and then you can exist. Otherwise, we're done. Nothing will exist." And so they borrowed from themselves, they paid themselves back, and they created, I mean, I, I don't need to tell you, you know, that they created the largest freaking empire ever existed. So the, the, the fact of the matter is that our money today doesn't come from my wallet. It comes from my future. That, that's where it comes from. If I build a greater future, that's how my money on aggregate goes up, right? If people look at different people, why is it that the, the medical school students can get, you know, bigger loans as opposed to someone who, you know, studied history because the income potential is, is dramatically different, right? It's the future that defines today. And, and the fact of the matter is that I don't think very, I think very few people in, in the DeFi world, in the crypto world, have that appreciation that the source of our money today is truly credit. And the credit is not something that is created out of thin air. It's created out of future that you could potentially create, right? So, so th that's, you know, how intermediation works. Well, I look at you, you're a high net worth. You could be a high net worth individual. Why shouldn't I lend you a million dollars today? Well, but the, the, I, think, I think the irony, of course, you say that they don't understand, but I think given the ICO issuance and such, I think they very well understand uh, <laughs> because that's really cornerstone of that entire philosophy. I, I issue a bunch of coins about what I will do at some point when I get this project off the ground, and then it will have some benefit to you. And so, sure. I, I, you know, but 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 I think you're right in that the you know as usual these systems are complex. I love the innovation in blockchain, and I think a lot of my questions are really more about trying to find the edges of that innovation, trying to find those areas where you're like, mm, no, ma'am, not yet. But obviously the core part that it solves and how it's able to do that and the eloquence and, and the systems that it's trying to create it fits incredibly well, both with this sense of innovation, also a little bit of sense of globalization. So the kind of let's get away from national borders, let's get away from national monetary systems, sure. especially powerful for emerging market economies. Um, and I sort of, I look forward to a lot more of these innovations. I can imagine that smart contracts in the future will be a lot more dynamic. I can imagine that they'll be able to have a lot more intricate logic and maybe a bit more AI inbuilt in it to learn, to adapt and to move. Um, Absolutely. But I think, I think yeah, we, we definitely move into a system where these algorithmic systems are governing the way the capital flows in a slightly more transparent or, or obvious way than they're currently doing, which they are certainly, certainly are currently doing, whether we call them risk models or whether we call them something else. I mean, they, they are formulaic and in, in some level of complexity. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting spread of innovation. And, and I guess, when, when do you think that finance will start to um, have, you know, blockchain departments and big research grants. I mean, obviously some, <laughs> you see some of that happening already. You see some great work and, um, uh, you know, various academics doing work on on, on chain uh, analytics and, and also trying to think about the structure of these blockchains themselves as, as a, you know, potentially as a cause of systematic failures or other kinds of problems as well. Um, I mean, how, how far do you think we are in, in the, in the mainstream financial um, academia kind of adopting this stuff? So, you know, my, in my humble opinion, I, I think uh, the, the technological problems 
haven't been addressed yet. And that's why majority of the research, serious research being done has to do with the tech. I mean, this announcement by the Anderson Horowitz and what they're funding, all the brains that they brought are basically computer science people who've been working on the theoretical aspect and the mechanic aspect of, of this thing. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, I read this, uh, it happened either yesterday today, before yesterday, uh, the, uh, uh, the board ape, uh, uh, auction that they did, the minting that they did, uh, they were sold in you know, a piece, uh, for less than 6,000 bucks. The gas fee was anywhere from 6,000 to 14,000. I mean, imagine <laughs> they blame finance for, for being expensive. <laughs> imagine if someone forces you to pay twice or three times as much for the thing you're buying in transaction costs. <laughs> Imagine how mad you're going to be. But, but so, Ali, I mean, it's 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 going to go to the moon. I mean, yeah, yes, of course. Don't worry about it. It's uh, no, but but I I think you point out, which is we're at the beginning of this trend, and I think mechanically you 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 see the hype cycles, you see the Ponzi feeling in the air, and unfortunately you see it at all different levels of the organizations. But amongst it all, again, is I think still a very interesting and solid technology that will probably go and move into lots of different use cases and industries, a little bit like AI. I, I feel like if AI had managed to launch a coin at the beginning, we would have had a similar type of Ponzi scheme about AI. But AI was similarly touted, if you remember, as, as, as far back as five or 10 years ago, it was a new electricity, and it was going to move into lots of industries and lift up the game in, in lots of different ways. So, you know, the, the, the thing of it is, I, I think that the example you gave is a perfect example. You know, AI, even to this day, is not part of the curriculum in finance. Uh, but, but as you said, and as you know, it is part of a practice, have been part of a practice for a very long time, right? Today in the research, you know, we use it for just generating, either doing the methodological sort of approach better or generating information that you could not have otherwise, uh, you know, have. Uh, and so, you know, we are basically at, at the start of probably next decade becoming part of the curriculums, you know, if that. And, and the, the, you know, the learning curve is steep. I mean, you know, you basically are demanding someone who didn't want to code for, for a living to now, you know, try to understand how a black box of code, you know, works, et cetera, et cetera. Well, right? and, 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 you know, it, it's, well, what I is, again, with AI, the culture behind it is a computer scientist culture, right? So it's not just, you know, like a, a state of MATLAB type of thing where you take it off the shelf, Pops right. up, you're in econometrics 101. Right, right, right. It's one that you have to set up, you know, a uh, an instance. You have to allocate memory. You have to do all these really core level computer science functions where, sure. you know, you're not trained for that as, as an average researcher. Sure. You have to pick up sure. all those skills in addition. But I think I think your point is well made, which is that generally speaking, it, it is a similar, it feels like a similar beginning um, promise of 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 this and and in some cases it as we've seen it's been adopted very quickly it's been very successful lots of other cases have been lagging blockchain feels like it's you know there's 33 billion dollars worth of PE capital that's gone in there for the last year right. four quarters alone which is more than any quarter this happened before a huge amount of talent and people are going into it it feels like the cement foundations are being right. kind of worked out right and and as, right. as you say maybe the time it kind of moves up to the sphere where um, you and I see it in, in our everyday lives being talked about as a separate industry or as a, sure. a part of, of all these conventional sciences could be could be a decade away or more maybe. Right, right. No, absolutely. You know, what, what I'm very excited is that, like you said, it's the tech part. 
when, when all the all, all the wrinkles is going to iron out, uh, blockchain is going to be the engine that runs the IoT. Uh, that's the exciting thing to me. Uh, where you know, for, I give you an example. There's a firm called Exometry, and what they are, they're basically manufacturing on demand via distance. And there's another uh, uh, firm called Protolab, and that's uh, building prototypes uh, via distance. So, you know, the first one is a manufacturing floor. The other one is CNC machines. You send your designs. They do it for you. They send it back. Now, imagine if these two and all the ecosystem that they serve can sit on a blockchain. So I could simply send my design to Protolab. Protolab makes the prototype, comes back. I'm okay with it. The design is sitting on, on a net. I mean, I don't have to do anything else. So I just called Exometry. I said, here it is. That's a block. I want you to do it. And it goes. And then Exometry comes back and says, to make this, I need four other members of the network to basically give me this material, this product, et cetera, et cetera. Boom, everything done. Um, and, and it's not something that is you know, um, beyond reach or beyond imagination. Um, for years and years, FedEx uh, has been doing, and now Amazon do it for, for themselves, but you know, when you ordered a book, it never went to a warehouse that the books were sitting. It goes to the central hub, <clears throat> excuse me, where FedEx or UPS were sitting. They would, de- they, would, they would get your order. They had these industrial printers sitting in a warehouse. They just download the book to the, to the printer. The printer just prints the book and they send it to you. I mean, it's basically same concept, but, you know, it's much wider, you know, more accessible, uh, permissioned, et cetera. So those are the things that I think, you know, it's are exciting. Um, you know, th- like people think it's, it's in the NSA and the spies that, you know, they got excited about the crypto and et cetera, et cetera. That's not true. Money was the first one that needed to solve the problem of making things, you know, safe. That's why you have all the routing numbers, all the designs of the bills, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We have to solve those problems long before any spy got excited about it because our, 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 you know, our financial health depended on whether the instrument itself is a safe instrument, right? So, so I think a lot of these experimentation that is happening in finance uh, would not have any application in finance at all. Rather, it's actually come and visits the real economy. And I think that's where things get extremely exciting. No, I, I, absolutely. And I often wonder, as, as you said, with these examples as well, the difference between had this technology come to market without the Bitcoin being the lead entrant, right? Because it was a lead entrant, it came in sure, going, sure. we're going to replace money. And it sure. became, it touched finance, it touched trading, it touched all these different elements of banking, DeFi, whatever, financial services being one of the primary areas where you know the blockchain is being considered. But as you say, there's this kind of a whole wave of application of blockchains, whether that's right. you know, in various different kind of formats and forms and you know, metaverse and, and so on, that it feels like has nothing to do with the necessity of having a coin or money. I mean, these are nice things because they, as you, as you said, they're the utility tokens or they share the gains or sure. whatever, but it feels like sometimes they're a bit of a sideshow to the core kind of core element of, 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 of the improvement that's being offered or, or the kind of the accessibility of data, speed of data access, et cetera, that, that's kind of the, the core value driver of that. So I often kind of think about this industry as a bundled industry of, you know, a, a pure technology innovation, kind of very infrastructure right. type innovation. Right, right, right. And, and this kind of a gold dust sitting around it, aka the right, right, right. whatever. Right. And so people get very excited about trading the gold dust or, or that's crypto or that's what it means. Sure. When in fact, that you know, the underlying... Uh, element behind it is this kind of very foundational technology. Right. 
No, it's it's fantastic. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today, Ali. Um, thank you. I'm thank sure you we could go that. on for a long time. It feels like if we had a couple of beers in front of us, we we could have uh, easily kept this conversation going for <laughs> hours could. and hours and hours and hours. <laughs> but it was a pleasure Excellent. to have you on. It's it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for the invite.